Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were far away have been brought near. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. By which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. I, uh, in the nine years, next week will be nine years that Amanda and I have been here. And uh, we're, uh, we're excited to have made it nine years. We had some people tell us we wouldn't make it that long. And, uh, but we did. We have. And in the nine years I've served as pastor of Family Worship Center, I have never taught on this subject that I'm going to teach on this morning. Um, I've taught around it, and I've mentioned it, but I've never taught a lesson about it. So this morning, let's, let's unpack this. Our nation is divided and hurting politically and racially. Governments and courts have discovered racial harmony cannot be regulated. You can't make laws to make people get along. You can threaten, and you can come up with all kind of programs and activities, but unless there's a change of heart, people are not going to be reconciled to one another. More and more, we're seeing an explosion of emotions over events which occur that are either racial in nature or perceived to be racial in nature. It doesn't just happen anymore. Now emotions explode over everything. There is a volcano. There's a volcano of racial tension in our nation. And the lava of suspicion, distrust, and injustice simmers continually. It's always under the surface. And when an event occurs, that lava comes pouring out. Now understand this morning, I'm not talking about this immigration deal. I'm not going there. I'm referring to the tension that boils over between the different races of people who call America home. 
This morning we're not talking about, I don't know enough about this immigration thing. We're not talking about people trying to get here. That's a whole different subject. I don't have any word of the Lord on that. Some of you have a word on it. I'm not sure it's the word of the Lord, but some of you have a word on it. But I don't have the word of the Lord on it. So I stay away from what I don't have a word of the Lord on. But I do have a word of the Lord on this racial thing. Of people who call America home and live together but can't get along with one another. Today is not a forum or panel on the causes of racial tension. This is not a form of panel, that's for other people in another venue. This morning I want to look at what Jesus says and what the Bible says about racial inequality. Okay, let's look at what Jesus says and what the Bible says about racial inequality. Today I want to ask the question to our church family, do our children know, do our children know Christians are called to racial reconciliation? Do, you, do your children understand that when they see a, 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 a friend or another person in their class of color, their job is not to put up a wall, but to be reconciled? Do our children understand that racial reconciliation is not, not, not just a, it's not just a political issue. Racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. It's mentioned in the Bible over and over again. Often churches believe that having a congregation with different races like we do is racial reconciliation. But that's not completely accurate. Gospel racial reconciliation will produce multi-ethnic churches and churches of diversity. But because a church is diverse doesn't mean it's embraced racial reconciliation. The United Nations is a diverse and multi-ethnic community more than any other organization in the world, but they're not reconciled. They can't get along, but there's different colors, different nations, different cultures, different backgrounds, different classes, all represented at the United Nations, and they're one of the most divisive organizations in all the world. So just because you have multiple cong- uh, people coming to your congregation doesn't mean you've embraced reckon- racial reconciliation. Gospel racial reconciliation begins with what Christ accomplished at the cross. This past, uh, this past week we had a, a, a visiting minister family. They just came into service and, 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 and jo- joined us for service. And then after service, second service last Sunday, uh, they, they, we talked to them, and, and they said, Pastor, we were so blessed. And I thought they was going to say how, how blessed they were for the preaching of the Word, you know. And, and, and Pastor, you rung the bell. I'm telling you, hit a home run. You hit a grand slam. We've never heard a message like that in all of our life. It's amazing. It's amazing how wonderful you are. You know, they never said that. They never mentioned my message. I don't even know if they remembered anything I said. You know what they were talking about? is all the different ethnicities and races that they saw on the platform and in our church congregation. And I, you know, I was thrilled about that. I was thrilled about that. But just because you're multi-ethnic doesn't mean that you've embraced racial reconciliation. It's a condition of the heart. Look with me at Romans chapter 5, verse number 10. It's a gospel issue. 
Racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Notice what it says. On the cross, Christ united enemies to God, and then he united enemies to one another. Over the years, we've had a peak. We've peaked into the blessings of God of reconciliation. Just thinking about reconciliation. Let me give you an example. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 17. Notice what it says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 17. Therefore, you've heard this verse, if you've been in church world long. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. If you're born again, if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled. Everybody say reconciled. Everybody say reconciled. Who reconciled us, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the what? Ministry of what? Reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, the word reconciliation means to change or to exchange from enemy to friend. To change or exchange from enemy to friend. The Bible says that we were enemies of God and God's wrath was upon us. But Christ on the cross reconciled us. He changed that. He exchanged our enemy status to friendship status. Christ made a way for us to change from enemies to friends and in turn, He removed God's wrath from us and allowed us to receive the blessings of sons and daughters. And then the Apostle Paul goes on to tell us that because we're no longer enemies, but friends of God, now we have a ministry of reconciliation, of no longer being enemies, but friends, and a message of reconciliation. We hear and sing that message often. We've understood. Listen, we get a peek of the reconciliation we have between us and God. Us and God. We sing about it all the time. I am a friend of God. I mean, remember that song. I am a friend of God. And then you old timers remember this one. What a friend we have in Jesus. See, we sing about our reconciliation between us and God. We sing these songs because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He reconciled us to God. But we usually stop right there. We boldly proclaim we are friends with God and God is our friends. But Christ's death on the cross didn't just reconcile us to God, He also reconciled us to one another. Not just us to God, but us to one another. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2 again. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2 verse number 11. Notice what He says. 
Remember the formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. He's talking to us people. That's us white Gentiles. That's who he's talking to. Now he's talking to black Gentiles as well. But he's, but, but for the point of context, I want you white people here. Anglos. Caucasian. Or as on every application, non-Hispanic. Non, I want all of us white people to listen to this. Remember that you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. You know what he's saying? You were on the other side of the tracks. You belonged on the other side of the tracks. You lived on the other side of the tracks. You couldn't get close to God. You weren't allowed to get close to God. You were too dirty for God. You were too unholy for God. You wasn't born right. You didn't get there right. You had nothing to do. You were an outcast. That's what he was saying. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made, now notice this, two groups, one. He's, he's made the people who were, who were in there, the Jews, and the people who were out of there, the Gentiles, because of what Jesus did for us, he's made us one. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. He purpose, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, one out of two. Thus making peace in one body to reconcile both. Everybody say both. Of them. See, he did not just reconciling white people to Jesus. And he's not just reconciling black people to Jesus. He's not just reconciling Hispanic people to Jesus. He's reconciling black people to white people and white people to Hispanic people and Hispanic people to black people. He's recon I reconciling us both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now, let me unpack this truth to you through a Bible story that we all know. And before I start this story in John chapter 4, let me share this with you. Jesus, in one day, in John chapter 4, Jesus, in one day, was able to reverse 800 years of racial discourse in less than 24 hours. In one day. We've been working on this for over 200 years and still aren't getting any closer. Jesus is able to do it in a 24-hour period. In less than 24 hours, Jesus solved a problem in John chapter 4 that existed for over 800 years. And it occurred in 722 B.C. Some of you will remember that. 722 B.C. In 722 B.C., Assyria invaded Israel as part of God's judgment on Israel. The Assyrians took some of the Israelites to Assyria and left some of the Assyrians in Israel. The group 
the groups, both in Assyria and those in Israel, had interracial relations, producing a half-breed race known as the Samaritans. This created a cultural and a religious and a racial and a relational divide as the Jews couldn't stand the Samaritans and the Samaritans couldn't stand the Jews. In fact, the Jews called the Samaritans Samaritan dogs. At this time, Jesus' popularity is growing, so he changes his location to keep from confrontation with the Pharisees. And we pick it up in John chapter 4. Turn over to John chapter 4, verse number 3. John chapter 4, verse number 3. In John chapter 4, this is the woman at the well story. And in this story, Jesus reverses racial reconciliation in 24 hours. John chapter 4, verse number 3, notice what it says. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, verse 4, he had, look what it says, he had to go through Samaria. Now, what's important about this little one line, he had to go through Samaria, is this. In the nation of Israel, if you've never been, I want to encourage you to go. We took a group of 45 with us back in November this year, and it was just, I've been six times, and it was the greatest trip of my life. And we'll go back again in about 18 months. I want to encourage you to go with us. It's, It's just absolutely wonderful. But the nation of Israel is a very small nation. In fact, Judea, Judea is in the south. It's in the south. Judea is Alabama. On our geography, all right? No, let's, they don't cheat in Judea. Just for, just for sake of example, Judea is Alabama. Galilee, Galilee is Michigan. Judea is in the south, it's Alabama. Galilee is in the north, it's Michigan, for the sake of geography, thinking about our... And Samaria is Kentucky, in the middle, for sake of geography. You know what Kentucky is, don't you? Kentucky, the land of beautiful horses and fast women. Kentucky... I had an 80-year-old lady from Kentucky tell me that one time. We were, we were preaching in a church in another city, and a lady came up to me and said, you know what, she's 80 years old. She came up with her little walker. Hey, pastor. I said, hey. She said, you know where I'm from? I said, no, ma'am, I don't. Where are you from? She said, I'm from Kentucky. I said, oh, I like Kentucky. Beautiful. She says, you know what Kentucky's known for, don't you? I said, no. She said, Kentucky's known for beautiful horses and fast women. I looked at Amanda and I said, wow. What do, you, what do you say to that? Judea is in the south. Galilee is in the north. Samaria is in the middle. The Bible says he must, he had to go. The King James says he must needs to go through Samaria. Unless... 
he was an Orthodox Jew, which he was. He followed the Jewish religion. And Orthodox Jews refused to go through Samaria. They would go around Samaria because they were not allowed to associate with people who were unclean. But the Bible says he needed to go through Samaria. But they don't go through Samaria because Jews don't go to the other side of the tracks. But verse 4 says, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. The reason Jesus had to go through Samaria is because he had an appointment. He had an appointment with a Samaritan woman. Now, you know this story. Jesus meets the woman at the well. Now, it's not any well. Samaria is full of wells. That's where people got their water. They didn't have faucets where they turned it on like we do. They had to go to the community well. They built cities around wells. They built villages around wells. You camped around some type of place where there was a well. There are many wells in Samaria because the well is where you get water. But pick it up in John chapter 4, verse number 5, and verse number 6. Notice what it says, John 4, verse 5 and 6. So he came near, or he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down at the well. Now notice this. It was about noon. It was about noon. Now this is not just any well. This is Jacob's well. This is a well with legacy and longevity. This is a well that has history. This is a well that has been used for several hundreds of years. This is a well that's a memorial well. It's an important well. It's a holy well. He didn't just pick any well. He went to Jacob's well. This is a famous well. With all the wells in Samaria, why did Jesus go choose to go to this well? The Jews didn't... Let me tell you why he chose to go to this well. It just wasn't by chance. See, the Jews didn't like the Samaritans, and the Samaritans didn't like the Jews, but both of them loved Jacob. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They called them Samaritan dogs. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews. They couldn't stand them. But both of those groups loved Jacob because Jacob was the father of the Jews and the Samaritans. This gives us the first point about any type of reconciliation. Jesus met the woman at the well on common ground. Jesus met her at a place of agreement. Reconciliation with a neighbor, reconciliation with a family member, reconciliation with a brother of a different race or a different color, reconciliation of somebody who's been an enemy of yours, reconciliation of any kind will not begin until common ground is found. You'll never reconcile with somebody telling them about their errors and their weaknesses and promoting your strengths. And all the good things you are. You've got to find common ground. Jesus went to this well because it was a place the Samaritans reverenced. And he found common ground. Verse number 7. Everybody still with me? 
Hadn't lost anybody yet? Verse 7, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now Jesus does something very interesting. He says to this Samaritan dog, Will you give me a drink? He says he's thirsty after traveling a long way. She's there to draw water. So would you give me something to drink? To this request, the woman is completely caught off guard. She can't believe it. She can't believe it. Verse 9, John chapter 4, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. How can you share that platform with a black person? Because we don't have nothing to do with black people. I had a man tell me that right after I first came here. He said, I ain't coming back if you're going to have black people on the platform. You know what I said? Bye-bye. Some things ain't worth discussing. Now let me ask you, notice what it says. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now as you're reading this, and I'm sure you've read this hundreds of times, but have you ever asked yourself the question, how did she know he was a Jew? How did this woman know he was a Jew? He doesn't say he's Jewish. He didn't walk up there and say, I'm a Jew. You a dog. Now give me something to drink. He doesn't say anything that is uniquely Jewish. He didn't say, woman, give me something. Boy, do what I told you to do. He doesn't say that. So evidently, he didn't. He didn't say anything Jewish. He didn't introduce himself as a Jew. So, but yet she knew he was Jewish. So, listen, Jesus was obviously Jewish. Either through his attire or his accent or his mannerisms. As soon as the woman saw Jesus and heard him ask for water, she immediately knew he was Jewish. Which means this. Now listen. Jesus didn't stop being who he was to reach somebody else. Now lock in here with me. Jesus didn't stop being who he was to reach somebody else. Jesus didn't give up his Jewish background or his Jewish heritage. Jesus didn't fake it to make it. Jesus didn't become something he was not to reach somebody that was different than he was. What caught her attention was though Jesus looked Jewish, Jesus talked Jewish, he wasn't acting Jewish. Because he was put willing to put his Jewish lips to her Samaritan cup. And that didn't happen. Jesus didn't allow the prejudice of everybody else in his race determine what he did. Jesus didn't allow 800 years of racism to define his attitude or actions. Listen, God is not asking you to stop being who you are to reach somebody different than who you are. 
God is not asking blacks to be white or whites to be blacks. He's just asking us all to be biblical. He's asking us all to be biblical. Part of racial reconciliation is embracing your uniqueness, but finding common ground in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Listen, we've got to put our culture and our color in the proper framework. To say you are a white Christian or a black Christian makes black and white an adjective. And it makes Christian a noun. And the job of an adjective is to modify the noun. Do you hear me? I said, if you say, I'm a white Christian, we don't do that, I'm a white Christian. Well, we don't do that, and I'm a black Christian. Well, listen... Black and white are adjectives. You've made Christian a noun. And the job of the adjective is to modify the noun. So if I'm a white Christian, then I must modify Christian to look white. And if I'm a black Christian, I must modify Christian to look black. If I'm a Hispanic Christian, then I must modify Christian to look Hispanic. And the scenario plays out over and over and over again. Well, I'm a cowboy Christian. Then I gotta make Christian look like cowboy. I'm a sit, I'm a city boy Christian. Well, then I gotta make Christian look like city. Well, I'm an upper class Christian. Then you gotta make Christian look upper class. See, the job of the adjective is to modify the noun. If your humanity, if our humanity, if our class and our color and our culture is in the adjectival position, and your faith is in the noun position, then your faith surrenders to your humanity, your class, your color, and your culture. But if I put my Christianity in the adjectival position and put my class, color, and culture in the noun position, then I always adjust my class, color, and culture to fit into the framework of my faith. And instead of adjusting my faith to fit into the framework of my culture, I do it the other way around. Our humanity must be defined by our Christianity. Our humanity must be defined by our Christianity. But we've lived in a culture, we've lived in a culture which have allowed our Christianity to be defined by our color, our class, and our culture. Listen, God is not asking me to like rap music. And He's not asking Jan Senior to like country western. He's not asking us He's asking us both to like Him. See, He's asking us both to like Him. Now because Jesus was willing to drink of this woman's cup, He earned the right to take a discussion about water and turn it into a discussion about eternal life. Because He found common ground. John chapter 4, let's skip a few verses. Go down to John chapter 4, verse 16. John chapter 4, verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. 
What you have just said is quite true, Jesus said. Sir, or she said, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now, in reading this story, have you ever noticed that Jesus never engaged on different cultural or racial issues? He didn't talk. She's the one that kept bringing it up. He didn't bring it up. She kept bringing it up. In fact, he never engaged. He said, can you give me something to drink? She said, you don't, you don't drink. What are you doing here at this well? You don't drink here. You don't have anything to do with me. Jesus is talking about common ground. He's talking about water. Everybody drinks water. He's talking about wells. Everybody drinks wells. Jesus, he never brings up this racial issue. He never brings up the divide. He never does anything until she mentions talking about fathers. And then Jesus said, now listen, if you're going to talk about fathers, let me tell you what my father thinks. That's the only time he brings it up. That's the only time he engages with her when she got to talking about fathers. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors, one translation says, our fathers. Now listen, it wasn't just her father, it was her fathers. It was her ancestors. It was not just her daddy, it was her daddy's daddy. It was her daddy's daddy's daddy. It was her daddy's 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 daddy's. It was, it was people, it's all sheep. This is how we do it. This is the way our family's always done it. This is where our well, this is what we we believe this is how we've always believed and this is the way I believe because my family believed that way verse 21 woman Jesus replied believe me the time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you Samaritans worship what you do not know we worship what we do know for salvation is of the Jews yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks Jesus told the woman at the well, if you're going to correctly worship God, history is not the first issue. I don't care what your daddy did, and I don't care what your family did, and I don't care what the South did. It's not your first issue. Background is not the first issue. Culture is not the first issue. Race is not the first issue. The first issue is spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Right, at, right attitude with right information. Spirit and truth. Right attitude with right information. Listen, black is only beautiful when it's biblical. And white is only right when it conforms to holy writ. Black is only beautiful when it's biblical. And white is only right when it conforms to holy writ. That's what Tony Evans says, and I believe him. Spirit and truth. It's not about race. It's not about style. It's not about preference. It's about spirit and truth. Jesus said to this Samaritan, he says, there's a time coming when it's not in this mountain or even in Jerusalem. 
It's not about being Samaritan, and it's not about being Jew. It's not about race. It's not about culture. It's about spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Right attitude with right information. Right attitude with right information. Now, we don't have time to turn there. My time's about up. But uh, you go over to the book of Galatians chapter 2. And Peter, who, remember Peter in Acts chapter 10, he's the one that was at Cornelius' house, who was a Gentile, and Peter's a Jew. And before he ever got there, God gave him a vision of a sheet coming down with all these un, uh, unclean things. And God said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, no, I'm a Jew. I don't eat that stuff. And it happened three times. And then finally, within a matter of hours, Peter is at a Gentile's house, which he was not supposed to be at. And he preaches Jesus to them, and they get saved, and then they get filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter comes to an understanding, a revelation, what God has called clean, I shouldn't call common or unclean. Duh, hit me in the head. Now years pass, and now Peter goes to Galatia, and he sits down with a bunch of Gentiles, and he starts eating pork chops. You say, how do you know? I don't know, I'm just throwing that in there, okay? I'm throwing that in there. He's not used to eating pork chops, it's against him eating pork chops. But you know what, you eat a pork chop, you like it. I don't care if it's against your holy writ or not. It's good. Pork chop's good. Big, big, thick one, medium. Oh, man. In fact, uh, what, it, uh, what is that place over there? Uh, chop House. Boy, they have some good pork chop. They have some good pork chop. Throwing a craving on me here real quick. Anybody getting hungry? He's eating pork chops, and he's doing good. He's associating with these fellow Gentile believers. He's associating with these fellow Gentile believers. And then suddenly suddenly something happens. Some Jewish friends from Jerusalem come in, and Peter stops eating and starts acting like he stops eating with them and starts acting like he don't even know them. He shouldn't even be there. He's following the prejudices of hundreds of years because he would rather be a slave to culture than be a servant of Christ. And he would have gotten away with it had not Paul showed up. And Paul shows up and and calls him out in public. I can't believe you'd call a preacher out in public. Listen, if you sin in public, you ought to be called out in public. If you sin in public, you ought to be called out in public. And Paul calls him out and says, you ain't right. You're not right. You're not right. Paul goes on to let him know, you have, uh, you have defamed, you have gone against the truth and the spirit that Christ has made us one. Gentiles and Jews. See, it's right spirit with right information. That brings us together. Now I'm going to finish this message next Sunday. So don't miss it because the best, he saves the best to last. But let me tell you something. Um, uh, let me kind of, let me wrap it up like this. I like mayonnaise. 
All of my examples have to do with food. See, I'm trying to find common ground. Most of y'all like food. Anybody like mayonnaise? I love mayonnaise. I just love it. I don't even like mustard on a hot dog. Now, Amanda loves mustard. She'll eat mustard on everything. I eat mayonnaise. I'll eat mayonnaise on my Pop-Tarts if she'd allow me to. We have two, we always, we, you might find a little bitty mustard jar at our house, but you'll find at least two big mayonnaise jars. Why do you have two, Pastor? One to eat out of, and another one to eat out of when the one you eat out of is gone. I love mayonnaise. I'll put it on everything. I even put it on my hamburger steaks. I put it on my steaks. I just love mayonnaise. Well, you shouldn't eat mayonnaise. I know, just shut up. I love mayonnaise. <laughs> Got to die of something, might as well be a mayonnaise overflow. <laughs> but have you ever noticed something about mayonnaise? Mayonnaise is a unique thing. Have you ever studied mayonnaise? You mean you studied mayonnaise? Yeah. <laughs> mayonnaise is made of two things that don't get along. Mayonnaise is made of oil and water. Oil and water. And I don't care how much you try to combine those two. They don't connect. They're not friendly. You can put oil and water in a blender and turn the blender on and stir it up. And when the blender stops, oil and water will separate. Mayonnaise, this wonderful thing called mayonnaise. Now I'm not talking Miracle Whip. I'm talking mayonnaise. That miracle whip's what I had when I was pastoring the church of 30. <laughs> now church of 1400, it's mayonnaise. How many remember that miracle whip days? I'm talking man. You take man. It's oil and water. Now... The thing that changes mayonnaise, two enemies who will not come together, oil and water, to something beautiful, is egg. You put an egg in that oil and water, and it's called emulsification. Emulsification. Emulsification is the process of taking elements which do not integrate and pulling them together to work together. You take oil and water and you put that egg in the middle of it and suddenly, supernaturally, that egg reaches over here to this oil and pulls it in. And then it reaches over to that water and it pulls it in. And they all of a sudden integrate and start loving one another. And make something beautiful. Listen to me. The gospel reaches over to this black brother and pulls him this way. And the gospel reaches over to this white brother and pulls this way and makes something beautiful out of it. Racial reconciliation. Do your children know that Christians are called 
to racial reconciliation. Stand with me, would you? Word's good, isn't it? I know what's going to happen. Some of y'all are going this afternoon. And somebody's going to say, what's your preacher preach on? You know what you're going to tell him? Mayonnaise. <laughs> Ray Hawkins, what's his name? Ray Hawkins was his name. I was in the fifth grade at Riverside Elementary School and one day our teacher got up and said, now students, tomorrow we're going to have a, a new student in our class. His name is Ray Hawkins. And we said, well, that's, we have them periodically in our little elementary school in Riverside School at Columbia, Tennessee. And then she paused and he said, now you need to understand Ray is a Negro the word she used. He's a black child and he's coming to our school. We've, we'd, we'd never gone to school with a black child. I didn't live in any neighborhood with black children. I, I didn't even go to church with black children. This was in 1969 and they still live on the other side of the tracks. We didn't go over there after dark. They had their own school. Carver Smith was their school. And, and can I tell you, I grew up in a culture that they wasn't like us, and we're not like them, and we don't want to be like them, and they can do their thing, and we're going to do our thing, but the two will never mix as far as faith or culture, even shopping together, or by all means, not eating together. I didn't realize that I had subconsciously succumbed through the years and even my teenage years through that, that racial divide that I embraced. I embraced it. I didn't, I didn't go out and talk about it. I didn't, I didn't fly a Confederate flag. I didn't know anybody that was in the Civil War. I, didn't, I don't know any of that stuff, but I had embraced that divide. And through culture, I was against them and they were against me and we don't mix. Then I... I went on. I went to a private university. Didn't have any black black students. And then I got my first church, and it didn't have any black people. And then all of a sudden, a couple came in one Sunday who were black. And, and you know, when you're all white and a black family comes in, it's not like they just sit down. And nobody notices. James and Victoria Guest came in. And it revolutionized my life. Can you imagine being a black family going into an all-white church wanting just to worship Jesus? 
You're not wanting to make a statement. You're not wanting to wave a flag. You just want to worship Jesus. And how uncomfortable that could be after years of cultural divide. And I had to repent to the Lord. Oh God. Even though I've never personally done anything or said anything or marched against people of a different race or anything, I never talked about it. I had this cultural division in me that through years, my daddy and my granddaddy and my great-granddaddy, they just embraced it and I was expected to embrace it too. And I had to repent. Oh God, forgive me. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you struggle with that? I'm not talking about you're not doing anything openly or publicly. You're not a militant about it. But you struggle with people of a different race. And you don't know why you struggle. A lot of them, you don't have any, you don't have any reason. You have no incident in your life where somebody has done you wrong of a different race. But even if they had, the Bible says Christ and the gospel has made us both one. Then you forgive them and go on. But have you, do you struggle? Do you struggle? Do you find yourself seeing something on TV and having these feelings to pop up? Well, if that's you, it's time just to simply ask the Lord to forgive you. Just forgive you. Racial reconciliation enemies to friends.